Part two, chapter five of Life and Times of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two, chapter five. One hundred conventions. The year eighteen forty three was one of remarkable anti slavery activity. The New England Anti-Slavery Society, at its annual meeting held in the spring of that year, resolved, under the auspices of Mr. Garrison and his friends, to hold a series of one hundred conventions. The territory embraced in this plan for creating anti-slavery sentiment included New Hampshire, Vermont, New York, Ohio, Indiana, and Pennsylvania. I had the honor to be chosen one of the agents to assist in these proposed conventions, and I never entered upon any work with more heart and hope. All that the American people needed, I thought, was light. Could they know slavery as I knew it, they would hasten to the work of its extinction. The corps of speakers who were to be associated with me in carrying on these conventions was Messrs. George Bradburn, John A. Collins, James Monroe, William A. White, Charles L. Raymond, and Sidney Howard Gay. They were all masters of the subject, and some of them able and eloquent orators. It was a piece of great good fortune to me, only a few years from slavery as I was, to be brought into contact with such men. It was a real campaign, and required nearly six months for its accomplishment. Those who only knew the state of Vermont as it is today can hardly understand, and must wonder that there was forty years ago need for anti-slavery effort within its borders. Our first convention was held in Middlebury, its chief seat of learning, and the home of William Slade, who was for years the co-worker with John Quincy Adams in Congress. And yet in this town, the opposition to our anti-slavery convention was intensely bitter and violent. The only man of note in the town whom I now remember as giving us sympathy or welcome was Mr. Edward Barber, who was a man of courage as well as ability and did his best to make our convention a success. In advance of our arrival, the college students had very industriously and mischievously placarded the town with violent aspersions of our characters and the grossest misrepresentations of our principles, measures, and objects. I was described as an escaped convict from the state prison, and the other speakers were assailed not less slanderously. Few people attended our meeting, and apparently little was accomplished by it. In the neighboring town of Ferrisburg, the case was different and more favorable. The way had been prepared for us by such stalwart anti-slavery workers as Orson S. Murray, Charles C. Burley, Roland T. Robinson, and others. Upon the whole, however, the several towns visited showed that Vermont was surprisingly under the influence of the slave power. Her proud boast that within her borders no slave had ever been delivered up to his master did not hinder her hatred to anti-slavery. What was in this respect true of the Green Mountain State was most discouragingly true of New York, the state next visited. All along the Erie Canal, from Albany to Buffalo, there was evinced apathy, indifference, aversion, and sometimes a mobocratic spirit. Even Syracuse, afterward the home of humane Samuel J. May, and the scene of the Jerry Rescue, where Jarrett Smith, Beriah Green, William Goodell, Alvin Stewart, and other able men, taught their noblest lessons, would not at that time furnish us with church, market, house, or hall in which to hold our meetings. 
discovering this state of things some of our number were disposed to turn our backs upon the town and to shake its dust from our feet but of these i am glad to say i was not one i had somewhere read of a command to go into the hedges and highways and compel men to come in mr stephen smith under whose hospitable roof we were made at home thought as i did it would be easy to silence anti-slavery agitation if refusing its agents the use of halls and churches could affect that result the house of our friend smith stood on the southwest corner of the park which was well covered with young trees too small to furnish shade or shelter but better than none taking my stand under a small tree in the southeast corner of this park i began to speak in the morning to an audience of five persons and before the close of my afternoon meeting i had before me not less than five hundred in the evening i was waited upon by officers of the congregational church and tendered the use of an old wooden building which they had deserted for a better but still owned and here our convention was continued during three days i believe there has been no trouble to find places in syracuse in which to hold anti-slavery meetings since i never go there without endeavouring to see that tree which like the cause it sheltered has grown large and strong and imposing i believe my first offence against our anti-slavery israel was committed during these syracuse meetings it was on this wise our general agent john a collins had recently returned from england full of communistic ideas which ideas would do away with individual property and have all things in common he had arranged a corps of speakers of his communistic persuasion consisting of john o wattles nathaniel whitting and john orvis to follow our anti-slavery conventions and while our meeting was in progress in syracuse a meeting as the reader will observe obtained under much difficulty mr collins came in with his new friends and doctrines and proposed to adjourn our anti-slavery discussions and take up the subject of communism to this i ventured to object i held that it was imposing an additional burden of unpopularity on our cause and an act of bad faith with the people who paid the salary of mr collins and were responsible for these hundred conventions strange to say my course in this matter did not meet the approval of mrs m w chapman an influential member of the board of managers of the massachusetts anti-slavery society and called out a sharp reprimand from her for insubordination to my superiors this was a strange and distressing revelation to me and one of which i was not soon relieved i thought i had only done my duty and i think so still the chief reason for the reprimand was the use which the liberty party papers would make of my seeming rebellion against the commanders of our anti-slavery army in the growing city of rochester we had in every way a better reception abolitionists of all shades of opinion were broad enough to give the garrisonians for such we were a hearing samuel d porter and the avery family though they belonged to the jarrett smith myron holly and william goodall school were not so narrow as to refuse us the use of their church for the convention they heard our moral suasion arguments and in a manly way met us in debate we were opposed to carrying the anti-slavery cause to the ballot-box and they believed in carrying it there they looked at slavery as a creature of law we regarded it as a creature of public opinion it is surprising how small the difference appears as i look back to it over the space of forty years yet at the time of it 
This difference was immense. During our stay at Rochester, we were hospitably entertained by Isaac and Amy Post, two people of all abounding benevolence, the truest and best of Long Island and Elias Hicks Quakers. They were not more amiable than brave, for they never seemed to ask, what will the world say, but walked straight forward in what seemed to them the line of duty, please or offend whomsoever it might. Many a poor fugitive slave found shelter under their roof when such shelter was hard to find elsewhere, and I mention them here in the warmth and fullness of earnest gratitude. Pleased with our success in Rochester, we, that is, Mr. Bradburn and myself, made our way to Buffalo, then a rising city of steamboats, bustle, and business. Buffalo was too busy to attend to such matters as we had in hand. Our friend, Mr. Marsh, had been able to secure for our convention only an old, dilapidated, and deserted room, formerly used as a post office. We went at the time appointed, and found seated a few cabmen in their coarse, everyday clothes, whips in hand, while their teams were standing on the street waiting for a job. Friend Bradburn looked around upon this unpromising audience, and turned upon his heel, saying, he would not speak to such a set of ragamuffins and took the first steamer to Cleveland, the home of his brother Charles, and left me to do Buffalo alone. For nearly a week I spoke every day in this old post office to audiences constantly increasing in numbers and respectability, till the Baptist church was thrown open to me, and when this became too small, I went on Sunday into the open park, and addressed an assembly of four or five thousand persons. After this, my colored friends, Charles L. Raymond, Henry Highland Garnett, Theodore S. Wright, Amos G. Beerman, Charles M. Ray, and other well-known colored men, held a convention here, and then Raymond and myself left for our next meeting in Clinton County, Ohio. This was held under a great shed, built for this special purpose by the abolitionists, of whom Dr. Abram Brooke and Valentine Nicholson were the most noted. Thousands gathered here, and were addressed by Bradburn, White, Monroe, Raymond, Gay, and myself. The influence of this meeting was deep and widespread. It would be tedious to tell of all, or a small part of all, that was interesting and illustrative of the difficulties encountered by the early advocates of anti-slavery in connection with this campaign, and hence I leave this part of it at once. From Ohio we divided our forces and went into Indiana. At our first meeting we were mobbed, and some of us had our good clothes spoiled by evil-smelling eggs. This was at Richmond, where Henry Clay had been recently invited to the high seat of the Quaker meeting-house, just after his gross abuse of Mr. Mendenhall, because of the latter presenting to him a respectful petition, asking him to emancipate his slaves. At Pendleton this mobocratic spirit was even more pronounced it was found impossible to obtain a building in which to hold our convention, and our friends, Dr. Fussell and others, erected a platform in the woods where quite a large audience assembled. Mr. Bradburn, Mr. White, and myself were in attendance. As soon as we began to speak, a mob of about sixty of the roughest characters I ever looked upon ordered us, through its leaders, to be silent, threatening us, if we were not, with violence. We attempted to dissuade them, but they had not come to parley, but to fight, and were well armed. They tore down the platform on which we stood, assaulted Mr. White, and knocked out several of his teeth, 
dealt a heavy blow on Mr. William A. White, striking him on the back part of the head, badly cutting his scalp and felling him to the ground. Undertaking to fight my way through the crowd with a stick which I caught up in the melee, I attracted the fury of the mob, which laid me prostrate on the ground under a torrent of blows. Leaving me thus, with my right hand broken, and in a state of unconsciousness, the mobocrats hastily mounted their horses and rode to Andersonville, where most of them resided. I was soon raised up and revived by Neil Hardy, a kind-hearted member of the Society of Friends, and carried by him in his wagon about three miles in the country to his home, where I was tenderly nursed and bandaged by good Mrs. Hardy, till I was again on my feet but as the bones broken were not properly set, my hand has never recovered its natural strength and dexterity. We lingered long in Indiana, and the good effects of our labors there are felt at this day. I have lately visited Pendleton, now one of the best Republican towns in the state, and looked again upon the spot where I was beaten down, and have again taken by the hand some of the witnesses of that scene, amongst whom was the kind, good lady, Mrs. Hardy, who, so like the good Samaritan of old, bound up my wounds and cared for me so kindly. A complete history of these hundred conventions would fill a volume far larger than the one in which this simple reference is to find a place. It would be a grateful duty to speak of the noble young men who forsook ease and pleasure, as did White, Gay, and Monroe, and endured all manner of privations in the cause of the enslaved and downtrodden of my race. Gay, Monroe, and myself are the only ones of those who now survive, who participated as agents in the one hundred conventions. Mr. Monroe was for many years consul to Brazil, and has since been a faithful member of Congress from the Oberlin District, Ohio, and has filled other important positions in his state. Mr. Gay was managing editor of the National Anti-Slavery Standard, and afterwards of the New York Tribune, and still later of the New York Evening Post. End of Part 2, Chapter 5